0: full of hope, I've got the urge to walk the prairie and chase the antelope, Aspen's gold, no snowcat, takes the elk, call me away, I can't keep my mind on working on this fine September day, I've got nymphorosis, longbows on the brain, I'm an outdoor junkie.
1: Drag Quest window. Podcast, Bob hunter and Matt Starley in the house. Hold on, fellas.
2: How's it going? Good to see you guys tonight, or at least talk with you. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm doing good.
3: All good over here.
1: Sweet. Well, I thought I'd get these guys uh, together and do some chit-chatting about uh, those uh, Idaho blacktail bucks. <laughs> <laughs>
3: You don't have to. So you you don't can't to get a tell, tag for. Her? You don't have to lie about the state. <laughs> Nobody wants to really hunt blacktails anyway. So.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I uh, didn't get to participate in very much blacktail hunting. I got out a couple morning hunts this year, and then lived uh, vicariously through you guys. Uh, you guys, Bob was getting out a little bit, and I know Matt took his weekly trip and whatnot, so we could. dive into maybe some stories or some things you guys, uh, experienced or learned. I know with black tails, it's always trying to figure, unlock the pieces of why they do what they do.
3: For sure, Matt, did you, I know talking to James, you guys were going to do a little kind of backpacking trip into some areas. Did you end up doing that (laughs) this year?
2: Uh, you know, I tried, um, I ended up going down to southern uh, I I don't think I don't really care if I say it James but we're <laughs> down in southern Oregon I went down there and um James was supposed to go with us and we were going to yeah we were going to try to get into some area that's like hard to get into and maybe stay a night or two and um ended up uh brought down my buddy Dave who's older and uh he he gets around still really good, but I mean, he's definitely, um, he's not in the same mentality as far as, you know, going far he's in as, as I am. As and so, are. yeah. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to like, I don't know. I mean, it it would have been pretty tough, but we did actually, we were going to go in and stay the night one night and on our way into the area. Um, we actually were biking into this area and, uh, I brought an electric, electric bike is on BLM land. It's all legal and everything. And like as I was trying to get up the hill, um my the chain on the e bike broke like in the first like hundred yards. And yeah. so I ended up um we ended up pushing in and just hunting like where we could get within a day's distance pretty easy. Um, and then I just decided I was like, it was just so much farther to get in there and with without the e-bike working, it was actually made it way worse. Cause that bike weighs like way more than a normal bike. And, uh, so it ended up not happening this time, but, uh, we still did go hunting down there and we had a great, um, a great week of hunting for the conditions. Um, neither of us came home with the deer but we did have some some good encounters and I learned a lot. Um I was able this was the first year I was able to really i kind of honed in that one sticking uh climbing, you know, technique for hunting out of the saddle. I was able to utilize that and really test it out. And so that was really Tell cool. Them. I learned yeah.
1: Tell, like the people who don't know what that means, kind of just a quick rendition of what that means, one sticking with the saddle.
2: Yeah, so as far as, I'm sure a lot of the listeners have heard of saddle hunting. It's kind of similar to tree stand hunting. More or less, you wear like this, it's like an arborist tree saddle, like belt that you wear around your your waist and it straps around your legs. And basically you're hooked to a tree um, by a rope that just lasses around the tree called your tree tether. And um, from that you can shoot and, and there's quite a few things we could go down that road if you wanted to go, you know, talk about it more. I'm sure I would think that a lot of your lessons are, have at least seen it. It's very, become very popular in the whitetail world. Um, yeah, but I think that,
1: I think that maybe a lot of people wouldn't know about the mobile, um, aspect of it, one sticking version, the club, that climbing method and, and yeah. how uh, lightweight it is. That's kind of, I think a lot of guys do know about saddle hunting and know about, uh climbing sticks, but the one sticking is kind of a uh unique way of getting up in the tree.
2: Yeah, so that's what I was gonna elaborate on was just the one sticking is your climbing method and there's lots of different ways you can get up in the tree. Um everything from some guys using um like tree spikes, you know, and climbing up the tree to screw in steps to uh, climbing sticks, which are probably one of the more popular methods to this one sticking is your climbing method. And it's also what you hunt off. It's also your platform. What I have is a, it's an ultimate one stick from uh, Eastern woods outdoors. So there's a a gentleman over in the Midwest there that makes a lot of this stuff. And it's basically a lightweight climbing stick that weighs about a pound. And uh, on the top of it, instead of being like a normal step, like on a climbing stick, it actually has a platform. I have that out on a, Limb, like, I forget what the name of it is, but it's out on the limb one. It's about a pound and a half, and that's just a little angled platform that you stand on. I think it's called the the scout. The scout, yep. That's exactly what it is. And then um, on the bottom part of the stick, I have a built-in rope aider that's three steps that hangs off of the bottom of that stick. So basically, um, how I get up the tree is I, I, I reach up about as high as I can, and I attach that stick to the tree. And I pull it down, and I've got this aider that's hanging down far enough for me to be able to step onto it and climb up to the top of it. And with my height, you know, I'm pretty tall. I'm like six five. I can usually get it up around that 7-foot mark. Um, and then so when I climb up that very first move and I get up on top of it, my feet are at about 7 feet. And then I have my saddle on. I have some ropes in my saddle, um, that I've, I've got with me. And so I hook myself to the tree with the rope. And then I basically hang there and reach down, grab my stick, pull it up, put it back on the tree again, hook it on there. And I climb back up that aider again and I get up top. And usually I'm not like, you know, I don't gain a full seven feet again because you're hanging there and you kind of, you can only move it up so high. I probably get about another five five feet or so. So usually when that second move, my feet are at about 12 feet, which for traditional hunting, I'm sure anybody that's, you know, shot out of a tree stand with traditional bows, you know, I've seen the advantage of not being up super high just for your shot angle and your bow limbs and getting a good, um, ethical shot where you're not shooting super steep down on stuff. I honestly, most of the time when I hunted down there, I found that just two moves was enough for me. Um, and, uh, You know, you're hooked to the tree while you're doing it. It's really safe that way. And then when I come down, it's even easier because I have, you know, like 30 feet of rope that, um, that I'm attached to the tree with and I can just repel down. I have a little belay device that uh, allows me to repel down. It's really safe. You're when in the dark, you don't have to worry about finding your sticks or stepping down right. You just walk right down and pull your, you pull your stick off as you come down. And, uh, I mean, there's a lot of little details within that the uh what I just described there that I worked out and kind of worked the kinks out of and um but my whole setup to get up the tree is seven and a half pounds um that's including the stick, all my ropes, and the saddle um i this year I got my backpack pretty well dialed we were doing day hunting most of the time, so um well, pretty much all the time we did day trips, so I had my like down jackets I had um you know, uh, in my food, I don't really bring a bunch of water that time of year. It's cold and we're not moving a bunch. So, um, but I did have some water and my backpack total weight was like 25 pounds, which was really nice because some of the areas we hunt were hiking in Deep. three, four, yeah. five, six, seven miles. Um, and trying to get into areas where there's just less hunting pressure and the deer numbers are better. And, uh, you know, I, this is all stemmed from. I started packing tree stands in and just hanging them in during like the off season, which worked okay. But then I found that the deer are moving around. There's like some stands that were good one year were no good the next year. And so, um, you know, the ability to be able to move and just set up wherever that, where you're seeing the sign is, is really huge. And then, so then I stemmed to doing a mo you know, like the mobile tree stand and we packed around um, the, the alpha lone wolf, wolf which yeah. by the time you get your sticks and that, I mean, you're packing 20 pounds, 24, you know? 24, yeah. I
1: think without your backpack, just the stand. and Yeah. Fix.
2: Yeah. And my wet backpack, I guarantee you with everything in it was probably 45 50. pounds. Yeah. 50. I mean, yeah, about, yeah 45 yeah. would be as good as you could get it pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, uh, the setup worked flawlessly this year as far as like getting up quick. I timed myself by the end of the week. I could get up in the tree fully set up easily within 15 minutes. Usually if I like things went smoothly, it might even be just 10 minutes. Um, coming down, I was getting down and and fully ready to walk out of there in five or six minutes. Um, which is like way faster than with the lone wolf. I was like, 20, 30 minutes, you know, 20 minutes was fast with the lone wall for me. Um, it's just louder, clanky with the big stand. This is super quiet and just quick. You can get up there real fast.
1: Have you done all day sits in the saddle?
2: Yeah. I pretty much sat all day, every day that I hunted, except for, Oh, I take that back. I did, I did try to move and, you know, I felt like, if I wasn't like bumping deer or seeing deer or like on, I would get a, I would get down and move. You know, I usually started out in a location that I knew was historically pretty good. And if I didn't see much, you know, I wanted to get down and kind of survey the sign and see, um, see if I could, you know, bump in any deer or see if I really was close to to where I thought they'd be. And so I did move, but um, yeah, well, I've sat all day. Dave, the guy that I took, had never sat in the saddle till we went down there and I let him use my old one that I had and he sat all day more than I did. And he's, he's in his sixties, early sixties. And he, uh, he liked it. You know, there were some aspects to it, the shooting part of it. He hadn't practiced, which came to bite us as he missed a really the best buck of his life. Um, on the, I think the second day we were there, um, I got him set up in the spot that we thought would be good. And, he said like an hour after light, he had this nice buck chasing a doe, came right out where we thought they would come from because we've seen him kind of work out of there in the morning. And uh, it brought the doe right by him, and he, it kind of went on his weak side of the tree. So with the tree saddle, <clears throat> you have your strong side that you can shoot out, and then your weak side shot is totally doable. If you practice it, you can either like pick your bow up and over the – over the your tree tether, the rope that you're hanging from, and like pivot and shoot that way. Or I like to turn my back to the tree, and almost like you're in a tree stand and shooting the weak side shot that way. But he didn't, he hadn't done it before, and he was messing with it, trying to get a shot. He ended up when he shot, his string hit the tree tether, or something happened, and he shot low oh. and, and missed it. And it was only like a 18 yard shot, oh. but Dang he missed the claim. Yeah, so he was replaying. I told him. Yeah, no, I, I told him, I was like, I had him, I wanted him to come over and shoot from it before we left that week. I invited him. I was like, can you come over and come shoot? And he was, you know, busy or couldn't come or something. And he was just like, I should have listened. I should have done, you know, I was like, yeah. well, you know, that's how you learn. Bro. I mean, it's, yeah. uh, you got to, pr- that's one of the biggest things with it is, you You know, when you first started, you do need to practice shooting out of it before you, really you do easy yeah, yeah
1: you, I mean I think you should probably practice with tree stand, but the saddle's more pertinent um just figuring out like your you know those different shot angles and and it it's a little more difficult to to get into your back wall if you haven't if you don't know what to expect i mean if that makes sense
2: yeah and and then there's some shot angles you're not gonna get to full extension, like if you shoot a clicker um which I take mine off that time of year, you know, I practice with it and during elk season, sometimes I'll have it in the, on there, but I've gotten to where, you know, I've definitely like, like practicing with it, but when season comes by, I usually get rid of it. Cause it just seems like even with elk hunting, you know, you end up in a weird position, you're shooting a weird angle and maybe you're not at your normal full extension. You're not going to hit that clicker, but, um, you still, you know, you could have to practice shooting out of those different angles and stuff. And it's, uh, I really like the saddle. Like, I know we, we, we've talked about it a lot with you guys just, you know, off and on, but having like so, you know, many tools in the, the toolkit when you're hunting to be able to adapt to certain situations. And I think that the saddle has become like a vital staple because whether it's early season meal deer and you're like, we got into a situation in Utah where, you know, we were, we were seeing lots of bucks. It was super hot, but the country we were hoping would be more spot in stock, and it really wasn't. It was really timbered, and still hunting through there was just really hard. They were always pick you off, it seemed like, or smell you, or hear you before <clears throat> you could get close enough to get a shot with the stick bow. So we ended up setting up on springs and with those saddles, and had awesome action. Um, so just you know, having that with you when you're going to a hunt, you don't know if it's going to get really hot and the water's going to be key, or Uh, if you're elk hunting and you find a killer bedding area they're going to every day and they're not talking really good to get up in there early in the morning and let them, you know, with kind of like we do for blacktail, finding a way to get your wind to dump off like one side of a bench or something, the opposite Mm -hmm. of when they're coming, um, could be a really good tactic to just kind of play the patience game when it's so hard to get opportunities at the animals with how hard they're getting hunted with calling and all these other, you know, Uh, effective ways that these animals are getting taken. You have to really, really get creative. I kind of
1: went back and forth with the tree saddle and the tree stand a little bit. And the conclusion is you can't beat how light it is and how it all fits into your bag. And you do need to practice a little bit. But I love that you're behind the tree, that you're kind of hiding behind the tree. You're able to pop out and take shots. Yeah. And my feet don't get cold for whatever reason. Yeah. My, I was always getting cold feet in a tree stand, but when I'm saddle hunting, so you got pressure on your feet, I guess. And I don't get cold feet, which is, I mean, that's huge. Yeah.
2: My feet always get cold, but they got way, really bad with in a tree stand. It's definitely not as bad on the saddle. I think, like you said, you're, you're using those muscles in your feet a little bit more. And I think that helps keep them warm. Um, yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more with what you're saying as far as the versatility of it, but it's, Bob uh, does what's a whole different
1: set of uses is the tree, uh, climbing tree stand.
3: Well, I, yeah, I, I played with it a little bit. I don't, I'm not saying I'm a huge fan, but I gotta okay. try the saddle. I know Matt showed us at the shoot this summer. Pretty sweet. I have to have to give it a try. Well...
2: Shot. I'd be interested in hearing what your impression or your, your likes or dislikes are with the climbing tree stand. Cause that's what I very first started with and I've never gone back to it from the very beginning, but I know I have my reasons, but I'd be curious to see like what it is, you know, how you've been using it and what you like about it.
3: Well, I mean, what I don't like is I, I just, I'm used to having my stand set, you know, like, All all the blacktails I've killed, I've, I, you know, I always had a stand set. So I, I like sneaking up in the tree, just, you know, whisper quiet and getting up there. I don't like clunking or even though that stands pretty quiet, I just feel like I'm making a ton of noise. And I don't know, just kind of makes me nervous, but I've I've gotten used to it. You know, like I only used it a couple sits this, this year, but I've, I've been using it. I've been kind of hunting late mule deer and uh i've been using it over there the last few years um and you get used i think like anything you can kind of get used to it it's got its ups and downs but yeah i still like to i don't know the areas i blacktail hunt historically i had to hunt a different area this year because they're still kind of closed down from the fires but i spent a ton of time in their shed hunting and and hunting over the years and it you know it seems like they move through the same areas i mean i've killed three deer off the same out of the same off the same ridge had to move a little bit because of blowdowns and stuff but um i just kind of like having it already set up i don't know i'm weird but no i mean there's nice having that having that seven pounds or whatever something you can actually pack around is definitely
2: yeah and you can run it the same way too like where it's already set up like the spots that i hunt locally for blacktail here like I pretty much know which trees I'm going to sit in uh, you know if I go hunt an area and like like when I killed my buck two years ago I already had my sticks were already on the tree or you could have had screwing steps and my platform so little I just bring it with me so I just climb up my pre-hung sticks it's really quiet boom I put it in there and and that that's the cool thing is you can you can have it kind of be pre-hung you could have a stand there if you wanted and just hang from your stand with your saddle. I'm not sure if that's where you're going to go there, James, but it is kind of nice to, I mean, you could use a saddle even on a regular tree stand and yeah, shoot I think bo- bo- both ways pretty nice, too. You
3: know, for us, we don't have those laws. I think some places back east you got to take your stand down every day. And, and mm-hmm. I've always blacktail hunted, you know, somewhat close to the house, you know, hour, hour and a half furthest drive and you got all year to do your homework and get, get one set up in the right spot. I don't feel like doing it the morning you're showing up to hunt is very wise, but I get it if you're traveling or, you know?
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think that, uh, the cool thing, I mean, there's many advantages to the saddle. The main thing, I guess, with like a climbing tree stand is that the biggest thing that I ran across is there's almost every tree that you want to hunt out of has branches and, if you come to a single branch, then you either got to cut it or you got to like unhook it and move it above it. And at that point, it's just a hang on stand. I'm like, I, I just realized, I'm like, I'd better off with hang on. So I hunted with hang ons for a long time because I can just pull them up to the height I need above it. You know, and from what I found, like you want to be in the tree. You don't want to just go in a tree that has no branches. Like, oh, this is one I can climb. So I'm going to hunt here. Yeah. You want to be in the tree that you need to be in I got to a, kill. I, I got a good story I would think...
3: about that. <laughs> So my, my, I, I killed a buck one year out of a stand I had pre-hung and, uh, and my brother wanted to go back in there and he had a climber. And, and I'm like, okay. And he wanted me to go with him. I don't remember what I was doing. Maybe I was going to try to film it or this was a long time ago, but, but so I go in there with him and I get up in, in my stand and he's got this fan, you know, he's all proud of this climber thing he's got and he goes up the tree next to me. Well, he can only get. You know, like there's branches, like you said, and he can only get so far. So he's like a little low than I would have liked him to be, you know, and I remember looking over me and like, eh, nah, no big deal. But, but the way the wind <laughs> works in that stand, I was just really nervous about it. So anyway, like an hour goes by and sure enough out of the reprod and it's, and it's like 12 year reprod, 10, 12 year reprod, I mean, just dog hair thick and it. Wasn't raining at the time, but it had rained all. You know, everything's wet, like blacktails are. And this this buck steps out of the reprod, and it's just a beautiful four by four, dark horns. And he stops on the edge, and he's like sixty yards, seventy yards from us, you know, mm. too far. And he stops, and he I remember he shakes the water off himself, just you know, from going through. The sh- and you're just like, oh my <laughs> goodness, it was like one of those foggy, misty mornings. And he stood there for a minute and then he smelled us and went right back into the trees. And I just remember thinking, man, if he would not, you know, we would have had him. Mm-hmm. So. Uh,
1: it, sound, it sounds like the climber would be good if you lived in a place that had no branches. Well, so, I I'll mean, you, that would...
3: I'll tell you the I, I hunted some timber company land this year because, like I said, my normal haunts were closed down and. It was actually pretty good in there because a lot of those trees are that certain age, you know? Yeah, it was actually not too bad at all. And, and one of the guys we ran to were whitetail hunting in Idaho, this old guy, he uses climbers. And, um, if you're hunting the same area, you know, year after year, a lot of times, you know, you're, you're going to use maybe the same tree. And when you go back, you know, you, you already got a lot of them limbed, you know, over time too. So that's another sort of advantage, you know, if you're close.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It definitely depends on where you're hunting and, and how you're kind of going about it. I think that on the coast, the trees just have so many branches. It's so brushy. It's like you would just, you would throw that thing away before you'd even want to use it. And I felt like, but, but down in, like parts of Oregon, like the Cascades, they, yeah, that bigger timber, there was lots of trees that I climbed up that literally didn't have hardly any branches that I sat in that you could have used to climber in. No problem. Um, yeah. It's, I mean, I think the advantage for a traditional archer just getting up out of their line of sight, whether it's an elk or deer or anything that we, I've heard you talk about it a ton, Bob, like the, you know, the 99% of the time when, when the gig is up is when you go to try to pull back and I see a, and they catch you, and being just up out of their line of sight, that's why I I just, you know, I feel like it's such a a big thing with, you know, as a traditional archer, like to be able to get good shots at animals, it's going to be a huge benefit if we can figure out how to use this thing to get closer, you know.
1: I got a good uh, question, Matt, um, for you. Being a guy that has some experience with, you kind of well rounded, you know, spot and stock and calling animals to you and still hunting and call and uh ambushing and you've hunted mule deer and a little bit of white tail and a lot of black tail and Rockies and rosies. Um when you're ambushing, when you're saddle or tree stand hunting do you feel a difference between the at least the deer species, like a, a black tail and a white tail and the mule deer are they uh respond the same way as far as the way you're pattering, pattering them or hunting them from the tree, your experience?
2: I think, I think a lot of the tactics that like we've learned from a lot of the whitetail guys are very applicable, um, as far as from like whitetail to black tail. And then even with meal deer too, I think that more or less they're kind of doing the same things generally, you know, they're bedding in a secure area, they have a preferred food source that they want to feed in. Um, and they have, you know, if it's that time of year, there's water plays a big part into it too. Uh, blacktail, the hard thing about blacktail is like even on a dry summer, there's so much water that you can't really like key in on that for blacktail. But, um, I would definitely say the biggest differences is how much they move during daylight. And I think that, um, Blacktail, the thing that makes them one of the hardest, harder than the other species, in my own opinion, is because they don't move as much during day, the bucks, mature bucks, don't move during daylight as much as like a whitetail buck would or a mule deer buck would. And I think even mature whitetail bucks and mule deer bucks probably don't move a ton during daylight w- during that specific time of year when we can hunt them, you know, as September, once they lose their velvet, I think they're all those species you could probably, if you looked at mature bucks, you're probably going to see their daylight activity and distance that they travel go down. But when you hit the rut, obviously all of them have to cover ground to breed does. But the thing about blacktail deer is they're, it is so brushy and thick and they have such a small home area that they can be moving around and feel comfortable eating and traveling through their whole like landscape. And you never even see them because they just like stay in the brush unless it's, uh, you know, um, unless it's like right before dark or they're coming to see, you know, I really feel like the bucks just don't, in outside of the rut, they don't really like coming into the food source, primary food sources until after yeah. dark. And that's the I, biggest I, thing why you don't see them is they just, they don't come to I've, the food sources until after dark.
1: I've chosen those, you know, those thick spots when you're opening up when you're hunting down South in more of that open ish country. So you kind of find like the thickest stuff. Cause you know, that's what they're going to be attracted to. And, you know, I've seen them where they just all of a sudden they appear and it's just their ears and their rack and they're in the thick stuff. And you're like, okay, like he's going to come over here. And like an hour later, you're like, he's just frozen right there. <laughs> and they'll just do that. They'll just, until it's dark, they'll yeah. just, this,
2: this year, this year I had a perfect example of what you're just saying, James, Um is a spot. I mean, you know, the ridge where I killed my big buck two years ago, yeah. it was out there. I put Dave up where I killed my buck in hopes that he would get some action there. And I went and sat down further down the ridge where there's a, there's a fence crossing and it's really yep. steep yep. and all these trails cross. And I went and sat there and I gave it till about the middle of the day. Cause I knew that on, as you wrap around, the steep hillside there's a nice bench and then it kind of drops into some thicker, thicker cover where the reason I like that spot is it's a nice pinch point close to bedding where they bed on that side. And we sat there till middle of the day. I think Dave had a doe come by and a bear and I, I didn't, I seen a doe way down below me um, or I don't even know what it was. I just seen a deer, but um, I ended up getting down and I was like, I'm going to go try to get closer to that bedding area that I think is a bedding area. I've never even been there. Like, I just think that's where they bed, and I slipped in there, and sure enough, there was seven deer bedded down right exactly where I thought they would be, like you're saying, in that thickest brush on kind of a a north. It was like a not true north hillside, but like a northwest hillside, and um, they were just there the whole time. Like Dave, they, they were probably I bet you only 150 yards from Dave, and who knows how long they've been. They'd get up and just feed on the the browse right in there where it's thick and just lay down and it was a hot sunny day um not great day for you know for deer movement and i felt like that whole week we were down there we had really two or three days where the the weather was conducive to get them on their feet and kind of push them out into those areas more during daylight and we saw deer those days and the deer the days that it weren't as great we really focused on those thicker areas and it's like it's so tough to get them to they're not moving a lot of distance in that daytime they wait, you know they really wait until nighttime and right of course right before dark we sat there all day then all of a sudden you'd see some deer or like as we were hiking back to the truck we'd see all kinds of deer they were on their feet moving like crazy so um i do see a difference i i, I think one thing that i really took from this year because i got to go hunt nevada mule deer early in the season and I just got to watch bucks every morning and watch what they did. And it was, when you do that, you learn a lot just about any deer species. I feel like, because like you're watching them feed, you know, they're kind of eating the last little bit of their primary food source as they're moving to bed. And then we watched, I don't know, I think there was about 13 to 15 bucks in this, this drainage that we, you know, and we wouldn't see them all the same every day, but we'd usually would see some of them and we'd watch different bucks bed in the same beds that other ones bed in the day before, but now these ones are here and these other ones over here. And they definitely have preferred bedding areas that multiple preferred bedding areas that they like to bed in for, based off of, you know, the thermals and the, that time of year, the the shade and the, the cover. and, And then it's also close to feeding. And I think just watching deer do that and then watch them get, you know, they usually lay down for an hour and a half two hours and then they'd get up and then they would go feed a little bit more and then they would re-bed down. And then once they bedded that second time, they usually almost always didn't get up for a good five hour, four or five hours until like, you know, five o'clock in the evening, they finally would get back up and feed for the last few hours. And um, it was just really interesting to watch that because it made me realize like if I was tree stand hunting these mule deer, because more or less like a black tail or a white tail, it's kind of doing the same thing, but it's within cover. So you can't watch everything they're doing. Um, yeah, maybe they're not moving as far cause that open country, maybe they need to move a little bit more, but I just thought, man, it's even hard to pick an ambush spot for these mule deer that I watch every day and I get to see where they go. Like I could pick one of those bedding areas and try to be there before sun up, but they're always approaching into it with the wind in their favor. So it's like you, you're, unless you're on some weird topography where There's wind pulling on one side and wind going pulling on the other side and you sit right on the edge where your wind's pulling this way and they come up the other way. That's like your only play at them for an ambush. And so it's gotta be a really special spot to do that. And I guess um I don't know. It's opened my eyes. I, I like thinking about that though when I'm like thinking about okay, if the deer aren't really moving, then I don't and I know they're not moving a ton right now, then I know I need to be really in tight to where they're feel secure. And where they're going to spend most of the time during the daytime, and I just need to be patient. And but I need to be sitting in a spot where my wind is pretty consistent because if it's not, you know, then you're just risking spooking them. Um, so I don't
1: know. That, if that's, and that's kind that of that the, makes sense. That could be the the difference of like what we were just talking about with Bob, like having those like awesome preset areas that are like the money pinch points where when deer are on their feet, it's likely they're going to possibly move through that spot versus when you don't have weather and you don't have the rut going strong, being mobile and being able to, imp- you just kind of slightly move closer and closer to those thick spots and, and hope to get lucky where you catch them just um, stretching their legs and feeding.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I, for right now, most of my action down on the late to hunt down, you know, when we're hunting kind of more of those migrating bucks has been more on those more high percentage transition areas when the deer are moving. Yeah. That's where I've had most of my luck. And yeah. so um, I really this year, I really did try pushing in close to the bedding like that. And there were times where I was like, one point I had spotted a couple deer. I assumed they were going to be bedding on the spot. I was sneaking in there super slow. I had seen where they had been eating acorns, and it was really cool. Like, there's fresh sun. You could see where they were, like, digging through the leaves and eating acorns. And so, and then it was right up the very top end of this really steep drop-off where I really find a lot of deer beds are, like, on ridge points. I mean, it's no secret. Everybody kind of knows that. And then if it's, like, above a steep drop-off, they really – especially if it's on the edge of some habitat (laughs) change.
1: Military crest, yeah
2: yeah, they, they definitely like to to lay on those areas. And this one spot, I was like, I just need to get to this area on my map. I'm like, if I could just get there and tide, I am pretty sure there's something bedded there. And I was like 25 yards away from the tree. I wanted to get up and (laughs) deer was bedded and I spooked it, you know, before I got to my tree, but it was kind of cool trying to do that. It's very hard though. I will tell you, it's like, You know, and then getting there, you have to have the confidence that there's something there. So I felt like I was uh, nailing down where they were betting. I just, getting in the tree without spooking them was the hard part for me. And, and, and having confidence that they were going to come by.
1: Um, that reminds me of that time when a few years ago, when I had that, um, second deer tag and I was, uh, hunting that kind of special state spot and I Mm -hmm. slid in there with the lone wolf and I was, coming up the tree and I, like, we kind of, it was a small spot. And I think you might've picked the spot out. Um, um, but I, I split up that tree and I was like, Oh man, this looks, everything looks so good. And I'm like three sticks up, getting ready to put the fourth stick. And I looked down and there's a deer bedded like 20 yards below me in the thick stuff. And I just froze. And they, when I noticed them, they'd already know they had, we've noticed each other at the same time. And I got busted uh, going up the tree right next to him, basically.
2: Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that that's something that this, I really feel like was my first year really trying to implement that. And so there's a lot to learn. And, and I think, um, it's, it's fun though. Cause it's kind of a new, I mean, I wouldn't say it's new. It's very similar to what we're doing before, but it's kind of like spotting and stocking, but you're not finishing the stock to where you can, you know, the one thing that I learned also this year, stocking, and Bob, you've done this a lot more than I have, I'm sure. But like and I've listened to, you know, the guys that are really good at getting mule deer on here that you guys have had on. And of all the bucks that we could get within bow range, like twenty yards, thirty yards, pretty easy as a lot of these bucks in Nevada. But we it was so tempting to be like, Oh, I just if I get right here I can I can shoot him, you know, in his bed. But the to get to where you can shoot those bucks in their bed has to be like the most ideal, perfect scenario. And they almost always are going to pick you off before you pick them off or or get a shot at them. I got one shot at one in their bed and I stocked, I don't know how many bucks. I probably stocked seven bucks. And, uh, I tried doing it on many of them. And the ones that we had success on were the ones where we sat and waited for them to get up. And so it's kind of the same thing you're doing with spot and stock. In that instance is you're just stocking close to where they're bedding and you're right. just sitting there and waiting. And then when they yep. get up, you're right there. So it's it's basically like you're spot in stocking, except for you're doing it off of, you know, historical knowledge, uh, suspected bedding locations based off of all these factors that, you know, that you kind of know. Um, and I found that you can get to where you can start to dial in those bedding areas pretty good, especially if, um, I don't know, if you know you're in an area where there's quite a few deer,
1: but... Yeah, and if you get busted and it's not because of wind and they run off, a lot of times you'll see other deer run by. Like, you're in a good spot. Like, you shouldn't, like, give up on the spot. I've I've said it before where I get busted by a few deer, but then I'm like, wait a minute, more deer are coming. Like, they're just, you know, kind of running running through. Yeah,
2: yeah.
1: Bob, t- because- Bob goes places where you only see one deer once a week, right, Bob?
2: <laughs> yeah, sometimes.
3: <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I, where you guys hunt, it's totally different. The country is totally different than where I hunt. I mean, I'm hunting big timber and it's a completely, it's just totally different. I don't know. I, I. Yeah. Are there many cuts up there? Or is it mostly uh, there? There hasn't forest? Been since the nineties basically, you know, they're all grown over now. Um, hmm. and so I spend, you know, I'm, I'm a hundred percent relying on an, Catching a buck, cruising. All the deer I've yeah. killed. That's what's that's been a buck. So you're hunting
2: period. topography, ninety yeah, percent topography, and, like.
3: Yeah, and I know, you know, like I said, I spend a lot of time just stump shooting, shed hunting, and and I know where you know the the beds are, and these patches of timber, and on this ridge and that ridge, and I know from tracking them in the snow, like mm. that you know I was telling you I've killed 3 bucks on that one ridge and and I mean I can cut a track on that same ridge within a couple hundred and I've done it many times within 3 or 400 yards and and that buck will eventually it'll go by that spot you know like that's just the way <laughs> it's the way they go that's through so, there you know and I've done it many many yeah. times and that's why I finally put a tree stand there and then you know and and it's not many deer like there'll be times that the, they're all hike into there and there's no tracks and I'm like, well, there hasn't. Been that is
2: a, that. such a golden nugget, um, Bob. Like that right there, what you just said. I feel like for a listener, like if you're if you're trying to figure deer out more, like one of the most valuable things we just I I was talking to I think I talked to James about it, but I had another buddy that hunts white or Washington blacktails, and we don't get snow on the coast very often, but it snowed here on Christmas. Mm -hmm. and every time it snows here like one day of scouting in the snow for me out here is like three years of trying to follow you know and if I were as good as James uh you know or like Preston or some of these guys at tracking and like really spent spent more time I probably could could get better at, at, at deciphering what I'm seeing on the ground but the snow obviously it's a lot easier yeah and I went out I went out the one day just right after Christmas to go scout out here because the snow is going to be gone in a couple of days. And I just got out and got on tracks and followed them and followed them. Oh, and they're in bed, 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 all these areas of beds that I'm like, well, gosh, I see why they are bed here. Nobody, I don't think anybody's ever walked in here in the last, because it's just a jungle to get in there. But on the other side of this ridge, it's kind of nice. And you could see how they like to like all these tracks. Oh, they all cut, like you're saying, they all kind of, cross in this spot and then um i don't know the it just gives you so much information that otherwise beds especially here on the coast are hard to see sometimes because the foliage is so regrowing all the time you get needles falling more there's just there's more debris on the ground you know what i mean um constantly falling on the ground so it's covering up their beds more um so you can learn those and here where we're at these bucks aren't really migrating like where you're at Mm -hmm. although i think even if they're migrating it's valuable but i think if you have the ability to scout in the snow like that is Mm. hand far that's the most valuable thing you could ever do and i'd be interested to hear your take on it because i i mean i've just been thinking about like what is the best time to do it do i want to go on like a fresh snow when i know that i mean if you're hunting i like a fresh snow because you can tell the tracks are fresh but if I'm trying to There's find snow. a tree stand spot, I like, oh, a I yeah. like a snow that's like 36, 48 hours, yeah. several yeah, days old. A Cause then you, sign. yeah, just the, then you can see like, because some days you might, it might be a coincidence that these deer moved all moved through this area. But if you have like a week's worth or two weeks worth of snow, that's still there. And you can look and see like, Holy cow, look at all the tracks that are piling through this area. And it's yeah. always like that. You know you're in a but good also, high percentage
3: area. You also got to be careful in the snow, too, and doing that because you got to remember, like we talked about earlier, most of those tracks you see are going to be made at night. And that's where yeah. when I first – when I was in my late teens and I started driving and going up hunting and in the Cascades here and you would see millions of tracks down these skid roads in the snow, you know, and I'd be like, oh, this is the spot, you know, and – Gosh, I can't tell you how many times I sat there and sat there and sat there in these places <laughs> like an idiot. But you know, like, like we talked about earlier, even during the rut up there, like, you know, it's, I, I think, you know, every big buck probably has two or three days where he slips up a year where you're going to see him anywhere, you know, crossing a road, wherever he's, he smells it in the air and he's, he's an idiot. You, need, you know, that's going to happen a couple days a year. The rest of the time, you know, those deer are smart even during the rut. You know, it's going to be right at, you know, and they're going to be in cover still. You know, so that's yeah. that's something to learn, too. And that's where I think going out in January, February, March, April, like, you know, after the snow melts, but before the spring green up and you can see all the trails and you can see the beds and you can see rubs yep. like that helps a lot, too. And, and, you know, like also up there, there's there's places that are so thick you can't hunt you know and so not hunting the open areas that that trick you into all the tracks and the snow and then also just riding off certain areas and being like well there's no use wasting my time here you know like you have to you have to hunt where you can walk through you know because there's a lot of those the reprod up there that's so thick and they they definitely get in that reprod and they will you know obviously they're secure in there but you're not going to do anything with them you got to be smart about it and wait for them to slip up and, and slip through the spot you're sitting, you know? So,
2: yeah. Yeah. Um, so I want to ask you a question in lines with what you're saying. Could you elaborate without obviously a given location, but would you talk more about the details on that spot where, where you said that they're going through there and it seemingly, it sounds like you've had them go through there in daylight. Um, like topographically, what is going on there or what's, what's well, kind of the layout? What, what makes them go through there?
3: Part of it is some thick rhododendrons on one kind of one side of the ridge. And then, um, another part of it is too, I think as they're coming up the one side of that ridge, they can kind of scent, there's a behind where i'm where i'd be sitting so as they come up and get behind it gets really thick like blow down city and so they're bedding back in there and they're coming down um you know is it a topographical
1: pinch point and a brush pinch point or is it just a brush
3: yeah and then so the so they're cruising back up in the mornings they're going up that ridge they can smell it you know kind of smell everything but as you're sitting and it doesn't until you're sitting there it doesn't it's more like a little bench, but it curves a little bit too. So as I'm sitting That's there, it. the wind will actually be almost at my back, but also going left, left to right across there a little bit. And it's just enough okay. to where those deer come up straight in front of me and they're, they got the wind in their favor, but they're not winded me. You know what I'm saying? And yeah, exactly. And I have yeah. sat there a million days and not seen anything too. It's, it's partially just having confidence in that spot. Uh-huh. And that just comes, like I said, from time tracking and deer. And I may tell you a little story. Danny, it was one of the, I think it might have been the first year he came up and hunted with me. And he was about a mile down in a different spot in one of my other stands. And and he shot a buck one night. And it was a big four point. We'd come back to camp. And he's like, I hit one, but I hit a branch. and And blah, blah, blah. So we waited a few hours. We went back in there. His arrow was broken. We found it. There was a little bit of blood on it. It just real fishy something. You know, we we're like, this isn't good. So we'll come back in the morning. So we came back the next morning and it had snowed like four or five inches. And we uh-huh. we were able to get back on the buck's tracks. It wasn't bleeding very much. But we found where we bed it bedded down that night and then it got up and it like shook off. And every time it would bed down and stand up and shake off a little bit, there'd be some little speckles of blood. So I don't know if it was like top of his back or low chest or leg or what it was just so we followed him because we had fresh snow you know there wasn't any blood but we had fresh snow and we we zigzagged all around this ridge and you know through this timber and this and and you know four or five hours later i'm not even paying attention to where we're at you know and i stop to take a leak and i'm taking a leak and i look up the hill and there's my tree stand. <laughs> so, I'm like, oh wait, oh crap! I'm peeing right from it. Like, you know, just that buck was cruising, and he ended up coming by my tree stand. You know, like that. I didn't even know we were anywhere near because we would just been beating the brush all day. You know, and wow. uh, anyway, so so uh, that's kind of you know I'm not as smart as you guys when it comes to that stuff.
2: I just, well, I mean, it sounds like so. It's on a ridge top. I mean. It sounds like, and it's kind of like a, like a low point in a ridge or something like that, where it's easy for them to cross over it, but they're coming out of some thick stuff then, basically? Yeah,
3: yeah something
2: like that. Okay. Um, yeah, that, well, what you were mentioning about the scent, the one thing i found, and I know James found the same thing, like, any of these good spots that you have the ability to ambush them is, like, finding a spot like that where you can sit in this high-percentage area and... You have a way for your wind to dump, but the deer still has the wind in their favor coming from, you know, whatever direction you think they're going to come. Like the buck that I killed to the big, that big one that I killed down there, I was sitting on the edge of where it was a steep drop off down in this creek bottom and my wind would get pulled down into it. And I was on like, literally I was on a tree that's like just off of the edge and I was up in it. And then I was shooting to this bench where if the deer came from the other side, Like you were saying, they had the wind in their favor until they got right to where I was at. And that buck came in to my rattling and was, like, looking around for those bucks. And once he knew he couldn't wind them, you know, or smell them, he got kind of suspicious, and that's when he turned to leave and I got my shot. But it's, uh, I don't know, I think that's the key is when you're getting up there and it's hard to really know what the wind's going to do until you get up from that tree and you start, you know, that milkweed yeah, yeah. is super valuable or whatever you sat, use for when the.
3: I've sat several, you know, I've put up several stands that, and some of it is just spending time. You know, like you, you might sit in a stand one day and just have a weird day with the wind. You know, we're up in the mountains, but then if you sit there a second mm-hmm. day and the wind's still blowing in circles, and then the third day you're like, okay. And I've had several places that were awesome. I know the deer went through there, but the wind would just swirl in those spots and... Never see anything and you just gotta, you gotta pull the plug and give up on them. But I will tell you the, the biggest buck I've killed with my recurve, it, it was going with the wind at its back. I mean, the opposite of what you would think. Mm-hmm. And he was, yeah. just, he was cruising. It was right at daylight. And I think he was just moving locations. And yeah. And so, I mean, there's no hard, fast rules. We all pretend. No,
2: there really is. There anything. really isn't. No, that's a good point. And, and I mean, they couldn't. Walk with the wind in their favor all the time, or they would they would not get to where they want to go. You know, like it doesn't yeah. work out that way all the time. Yeah, and, so, and they do a lot of point.
1: j-hooking, and so w- when they do a big roundabout j-hook, there's if they're choosing a bedding area, they're gonna be walking cross, at some wind. point across yeah. wind. Yeah, yeah. yeah. when um, when me and Alexa. We were up on top of that mountain, you know, took her on those u hunts and, and, um, we went through there during rain and we seen a lot of tracks. I actually, I think took a picture, a few pictures of some big tracks up there. And then we came back like a few weeks later and there was just a skiff of snow and it was like, Oh, that, those few crossing areas, there was even more tracks. Well, there wasn't more. there's was just more obvious because of the snow. And then we came back a few weeks later. And there was a lot of snow, and it was snowing. We actually found some lion tracks, and we were following those lion tracks. And while we were following those lion tracks, which I think the lion tracks were like eight hours old, an hour to 14, I don't know, older, like half day old. But a fresh buck was running on top of those tracks. And so after we gave up on the lion tracks, we're now walking back, and I'm noticing where that buck so I was like, well, let's follow, backtrack this buck. And that buck was, like, classic, bedded up on the point, And he saw us visually coming. And then took off down the hill and ran. Yeah. Um, and it was before, really cool to didn't,
2: backtrack You didn't even him. know. Yeah, you didn't even know. Yeah, I mean, he, he had spooked, yeah. and you guys never even saw him, right? He was I gone.
1: I knew the it. tracks. You no, know, we never saw him. And the tracks were so fresh. And I kept telling that these are so fresh. Like, he's running from us right now. And... um And then, so when we backtracked it, you know, half an hour, 45 minutes later, when we gave up on the tracks, we're coming back, uh, I decided to cut up the hill where he came from and sure enough, went right to his bed and I, and I, Mm -hmm. and I leaned down and I looked at our tracks in the snow coming down the skid road and I'm like, yeah, he, he saw us. we never seen him. And he, he hit the hit. He just snuck down our way and then D-line to the next step where the lion had been walking. Yeah, that's cool. So
2: Yeah, you can learn so much from from being able no. to track them like that and, yeah. and see them in the snow. That, I, that day I went and looked in the snow. I found another area where, um, I don't know, I felt like, I mean, we all know blacktail deer and just deer in general like habitat edges, but I've really found here on the coast that um, these deer really like bedding on the edge of big timber, which for us the timber's not super big because they're harvesting it, right? It's like 40, 50-year-old timber. But for here, it's like good sized timber patch butted up against reprod trees that are like, you're saying, um, Bob, that are like almost impenetrable reprod to walk through. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like 10 to 15 feet and, uh, they really like bedding on the edge of that. You know, uh, I, I found this one edge that I walked it in the snow and I, I think I marked like, 15 beds and like 200 yards of, and they were all on this edge. And it just made me visually see like, gosh, if this is what they're doing, like, why wouldn't a buck looking for a doe come and cruise this for one, they like the habitat edge line anyway. And if we know, like does are going to be likely to be bedded on it, or maybe they were bedded on it and he could smell, you know, and get on their trail and follow them. Like, I was just thinking, man, this should be a good spot for hunting. And and that's what that mountain
1: was doing. He, he was walking the thick edge where all the deer tracks were right and mm-hmm. and he'd already passed through there, and then that big buck ran through there, like they were all using that, yeah, and we don't like for the guy's listening, snow's not a regular occurrence for us, like on the coast range stuff, it's you know every four, or five, ten years we see snow, it's it's a rare occurrence to and get to, to get snow and to go learn from. You know from from it and then i guess it's it's more it can be common down south but usually not during our season as much right
2: yeah um like this year we didn't have any snow when we were there it didn't snow yeah. till later like when you guys had the youth on it. but yeah i tell you what i definitely I mean i know you guys and most listeners are probably hunted in snow at times when there isn't and know the difference between the two but when okay. you're hunting a blacktail like that is probably one of the biggest challenges with it when you're not in the you know, most of the time here on the coast, especially, you're just, like, you don't get those ability, opportunities to, to learn what you do in the snow very often, so it's pretty, yeah. I went and hunted in Idaho at whitetails, and we had hunted in the snow pretty much the whole time, and it made following sign and reading sign, it was, like, so easy and just a no-brainer. It was nice, and then when you see a scrape in the snow, it's like like a red flag just saying, hey, look here, you know, I don't know, it's just that was another big difference, I guess, to kind of go back to your question, James, about the difference between the deer as, like, you know, whitetail leaving scrapes. When I'm white whitetails, like, that is a huge advantage um, compared to a blacktail deer that I think a lot of guys, I've never heard guys really talk about. But, I mean, we know that we have seen some blacktails make scrapes, but, it I mean, it's extremely rare, especially coastal blacktails. Um, but they do have them. I know they do. I've seen them. They have licking branches, but they don't. They don't do it as much as a whitetail deer does, and um, I think that they do more scent scrapes where they're not actually scraping the ground, but they go and they piss on their hawks and they mark it, and then other bucks come there and rub it. I think they do more licking branches and just leaving the scent versus they don't really paw the ground up to where you can visually see those areas, so it's harder for us to find them. The big thing with whitetails, as we all know, we've listened to the, you know, is that during the rut, the pre-rut, if you can find a good scrape in a secure area, like we've been just talking about those thicker areas that they like to frequent, they feel comfortable in, and you find a good community scrape in there. If you sit there downwind of that from, you know, the week before the rut really kicks off and you sit there every day, like you're going to have a buck come in there during daylight. I mean, I shouldn't say you're going to, but if you're in a good area, like your odds are super, super high. Um, that's how I killed that buck in Idaho when I was there and it was pretty lucky, but, um, it, you know, the timing of it all, it's just, it's a biological need for them to leave their scent so that the does can, um, you know, the does know they're there and the other bucks know they're there. And, and they just like, they cannot not do it, you know? And with blacktails, that's a really hard thing that you can't, I won't say you can't take key in on it, but like, you know, from all the scouting and trail cameras and everything I've ran, like, I've really only found a few... Like, I found that one licking branch scrape kind of like area um, that I had a lot of bucks come to the same spot uh, last year. But then it got logged this year, and it's gone. So it's like, you know, uh, that's another thing about the coast that's so tough is you learn an area, and in 30, 40 years, they're logging it again, and it's, it's constantly changing every five years. So you never... You
1: know,
2: versus like versus like the Cascades, you know, or like Southern Oregon, the terrain stays the same. I go to the same spots year in and year out, and they're the same, you know, every year, more or less. The layout of them and and the way the animals like to use them, but
1: yeah, it makes me uh, it makes me think about my luck this year. My buddy had picked up this forty acre chunk that's like next to town, by the cemetery, and it's just a little house he's remodeling and there's an orchard and just brush everywhere. And I'm like starting to scout it and I'm going to need to cut some trails into the blackberries, to try to figure out what's going on. I'm starting to see the biggest freaking historic signpost rubs. And I'm like, Oh, calling call him Matt all the time. And Bob Tell him, Oh, there's a giant here. Then my buddy, who doesn't hunt, who gave me the permission to hunt it, goes, "Oh, you're gonna love what we did. We just cleared the property." And I go there, and it's like they, they're gonna, they're going to build lots. <laughs> they literally moonscaped, they made it like a park. And I was like, "No, you gotta be kidding me!" Like they just took all the habitat out completely. Um, they did end up seeing the giant buck running around when I was at work, of course but that's how <laughs> yeah, they made
2: it. a nice nighttime feeding spot for him.
1: That's what they did. They made a nice nighttime feeding spot and displaced them to the neighbor's thick brush.
2: Yeah. Oh.
1: They like the thick stuff. That's for sure.
2: They do. And, and, uh, you know, I, I think that's what makes them fun though, too, is they're you know, you're trying to figure out something that's really hard to figure out. And and all deer are that way. I mean, white tail, Meal deer they all have their challenges and it's uh i don't know blacktail i know that not a lot as many people get to experience hunting them but i i know the people that enjoy hunting them are just like consumed by it. just whitetail deer though are so fun to hunt too like after getting to go do that last year i'm like i definitely have the desire to hunt more whitetail because just seeing the scrapes and all the sign that you get to read and uh, the difference with that was like eye opening to me. I was like, man, this is so fun. There's, there's so much sign and there's so much that you can see where you go in the brush. It's like, all I see are blackberries in my scratching, you know, every square inch of my body <laughs> and places that you don't want to walk. But
1: deer there. are kind of weird critters, like from following them around, they, they just kind of do circles and lay in the brush and, you know, like when you elk or bear, they're like they're feeding and they're laying. They're kind of just bedding and and moving to the next. Like they're always kind of like heading for a destination, or deer just kind of I don't know what they do. They're 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 hard to follow for sure. They I mean that's why I think multiple ambush hunt whitetail and um, blacktail in the thick cover because it's not like they're often not going anywhere unless they're rutting or they're a food source changes,
2: yeah so what things did you learn bob this year from from your did you i mean i know you got a buck you kind of told me a little bit about the story but like was there any take home things that you like aha moments from this year that you kind of or maybe things you were rem- reminded of that you hadn't remembered from before uh, whether it's the it's, tracking it, it, of it or anything a
3: number of years since i hunted blacktails you know i've been Kind of trying to get, I've been hunting mule deer. The last year I guess we hunted blacktails, but I was in Alaska and then for five years before that I was hunting mule deer during the rut. So I kind of took some time off and then my, like I said, my place was kind of shut down. So it was different hunting timber company land, you know, clear cuts. Mm-hmm. And it yeah. was kind of hard to know, like there's roads everywhere, you know? Uh, yeah, I'm used to hunting where I can I go get away from everything and, um, luckily there wasn't a lot of people hunting. So that was nice, but it was still weird hunting where there's roads everywhere. So we did a lot of driving and glassing and, and you know, I had, I had used up most of my time during the early season. So I had Ava with me quite a bit. And so that was fun getting out, you know, running around with her rattling. She's she's really afraid of Bigfoot right now, so our rattling sequences. (laughs) Whose fault is that? (laughs) They didn't last very long. Like we get out, we get in the spot, and I'm like, oh yeah, this is good. This is good, you know, set up. And she she likes to We'd rattle a little bit, and then I mean, like two minutes ago, and she'd be like, Daddy, let's go, and I'm like, what? So after a few times I finally, you know, you're afraid of, she's afraid of Bigfoot, so. Well, you took her to the Bigfoot Museum,
1: Bob. I told you that was going to happen. Yeah,
3: but she did watch me. (laughs) We, we spotted a buck and it was actually across the road in front of us, went out in this clear cut and, and I stopped and hopped out and I was able to loop around and she could see the whole thing. And this buck was just, man, he was cruising. I don't know. This is three or four days before Thanksgiving, and 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 I oh I I had a shot once, but it was like he kept kind of moving and moving, and he stopped, and it was a little far. I'm not shooting real good right now because my shoulder, so I'm trying to keep him pretty close. So so I ended up going out. I kind of looped around and got in front of him, and sure enough, he cruised right by, and and and. He was going straight away from me, so I just I almost kinda ran around it was only a, you know, it was a little fork on but I kinda ran up to and I got right behind him and so she's way back down the way in the truck, but she could see me draw back and everything. He turned cording away and I stopped and looked back, I let go, and then he turned away again and and left and my arrow went right by him and uh away he went and he just never stopped, man, he was cruising. So that was pretty cool. She got to see that. But um Things I learned, you know, I I didn't, like I said, I didn't get to really hit it hard, but it was just different hunting. Yeah. Hunting the clear cuts and the roads and, and, uh, it was, it was definitely different. We saw a few nice bucks and had a good time. That's for sure. Um, so I'm I'm kind of pumped about it again, you know, like those late mule deer hunts are so weather dependent and you're traveling so far. I really miss scouting, you know, and I used to do a lot of that for black tails And I'm, you know, didn't well. your uh, buck
1: give you the slip on the recovery? He oh. learned you a lesson, <laughs> didn't he?
3: Yeah, it wasn't the greatest tracking job. So we we had snow that day, actually, a little up high, and so uh, buddy was with me, my buddy Brian, and we were going up to get in the snow and and the bucks were rutting that day. You know, we're going up in the dark and the headlights and there's we saw a couple different bucks across the road and we're like, Oh man, it's on. And so we actually stopped and waited so we could class a couple of these clear cuts on the way up. And, and, uh, so we waited for it to get light and We're cruising and up above, a, uh, up ahead of us, we see a buck chasing some does. So I hopped out, and I, I circle around this little corner and, couple does cross come over and then the little buck comes across and it was about, I don't know how far, 20, 25 yards. And I shot and I just, I drilled that thing and it took off running and, and I'm like, man, I just shot it in the heart, you know? So it bails off and it goes into this clear cut, but it, you know, it was several years old. So there's brush and everything. And and I walk back down to the truck. I'm like, man, I smoked that thing. And, And, and I'm like, let's, you know, let's leave them for a little bit, let them rest and let's go up and, and see if we can cut any fresh tracks in the snow. So, so we mark the spot, we take off, we go up and, uh, we didn't cut any fresh tracks and we glass for probably an hour and a half or something. And, and we are like, ah, oh, I'm like, all right, we better go get that buck. We come back down and, and we're, we start looking and, and right off, I'm not real concerned with finding a bunch of blood. I just kind of, you know, go the way he went. I'm like, I'm going to make a little loop here and he's going to be piled up. Well, it's always way thicker than you think in that stuff. And so I start making loops and bigger loops and, and Brian's making loops and man, we're like, what the heck? And we go back, we're not finding any blood. And, and man, like four hours later, we're like, we have almost given up. and, and, Brian's like, man, that you know something's up. I'm like, I know, I know, I drilled that thing, but I I didn't get a lot of penetration. We found my arrow, um, and so I'm thinking now. I'm thinking maybe I hit like brisketed him or something, you know.
0: And mm-hmm.
3: and so we start and and it, uh, thankful to him. Like I wouldn't have found it if it wasn't for him. Like I usually do not give up ever, ever, ever. And I was, I was, I just like, man, we have looked everywhere. I don't know where he could have went. Like if I hit him where I thought I hit him, there's no way he made it out of this area. You know what I mean? And we had checked that whole area. And so we kind of, and then we found like a little drop of blood there where it went across his cut bank. And he's like, okay, this is right where you shot. Like he's got to be like, if he's bleeding right away, something's up. And I'm like, so then I'm like, I agree. Like, Yes. And so we start searching again and again and here are the loops, we start making bigger circles. You know, Brian's trying to stay on the blood, but there's no blood and it's just a jungle. And pretty soon I hear him go, Hey, I found some blood. And I'm like, Oh, okay. You know, I'm a counter yards away and I walk back over there and he's right, right by where I shot it, you know, maybe 50 yards and he goes, I go, where's the blood? He goes, oh, it's right there by the antler. <laughs> and this deer had piled up in this salal brush, like right there behind the stump. And the whole time oh we gosh. were walking in circles around it. I mean, it didn't go 50 yards. And it was laying right there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, like, my God. Oh, my goodness. That's embarrassing. Uh, and I shot it right in the heart. It was awesome. But anyway, that just goes to show you those blacktails, man. They are it's brushy so yeah yeah
2: that is a really tough thing about tracking them in the brush is really hard if they're not bleeding you know Mm -hmm.
3: everyone i I shot this one with a two blade but i used to always use three blades when i was blacktail hunting just for you know just for that reason and i probably maybe go back to it next year
2: we'll see yeah, I'm interested in maybe trying that. I've, I haven't, with the wood arrows, I haven't really even tried shooting a three-blade, brought it at all, um, mm-hmm. even practice or anything. So, which one do you normally use? Uh, I shot those Woodsman's. The Woodsman? Yeah, that's what I was kind of thinking. Something that's not super big, you yeah. know, as far as, I mean, I don't know what they are, like an inch or in a quarter or something, maybe a 316th or...
3: Yeah, cause I mean some of those places, and I've gotten lucky a couple times. I shot one one time; it was straight under me, and this was with a with a compound. But I shot it, and actually, I've shot two of them like that. That I knew, like they were right under me. I knew it didn't go out the bottom of his chest, and I I just remember when I shot him, like man, there's not gonna be any blood. And so I watched him, you know, run a run a loop and head toward the reprod, and it was. It was some thick stuff, and I'm like, "Please!" and and I got out. Wait a little while, and I got out, and I I was walking these blowdowns and out to the edge of the reprod and looking, you know. And I and I you know, go down and walk the next one and look, and and no kidding, his ass was the only thing hanging out of that reprod. Like <laughs> the rest of his body had made it in there, and I saw his ass, and I went and pulled him out of there. I mean, it was dog hair thick. I mean, I don't know if I'd ever found. Yeah. So you gotta be careful yeah. and that's where, you know, with the recurve, like you said, moving that stand down is, is important to get a hole in their side and not in the top of their yeah. back. Cause if it doesn't come out the bottom, man, yeah. you're gonna have, I shot another one like that and, and some, um, he was coming down this little trail and it was super thick rhododendrons. Like you could not walk through them and, and another thing they do when you, when you hit them like that is I, I think they think it's a cat jumping on their back. I honestly think it's like ingrained in their DNA and I have never seen a deer flip out so bad as that. I mean, I shot this thing and it freaked and it took off through the, the thickest And Like, like I said, you couldn't walk and I just heard it just breaking stuff and it just made a big loop and then I heard nothing. And uh, and it was right before dark, and I'm like, oh, he's dead, he's right there, awesome, you know. And it was super cold that night, you know, it was getting down into the twenties. So I, I looked a little bit. And I'm like, there's no way I'm going to find this thing in the dark. I'll just come back in the morning. So I came back with the old man, and it still took us like two two and a half hours to find him. And I heard him go down. Wow. And we were we were just circling. I mean, it was, and he went down mid mid stride. I mean, his face was in the turn. So, anyway. um,
2: yeah, you, you just never know. I mean, my brother had a similar, his first um, traditional kill that bull he killed in Idaho a few years back. He had a similar experience. He like shot it, made a perfect shot. It only went like 70 yards or something, but somehow, you know, it didn't bleed at all to where it died. And he followed the track. Well, he got mixed up on a different track thinking it was it and ended up looking in you know off in this wrong direction and uh it was sitting there dead it took he said he sat and looked for like five four or five hours he ended up having a buddy come and meet him and they came back there and they went they ended up going back to square one just thinking like what happened here and they found that other they found the other track and went over there and walked right to it and it was dead it was like sitting there like right by him like you said so i think sometimes you know when you get stumped, you just gotta come back to the the same spot and really try to sit and work it out. James is really good at that. I'm learning to be better about that when it's your own animal. I feel like I'm the worst That's yeah fall apart but.
3: well, and having a buddy just kind of different perspective too always helps you know i always I've always prided myself as being a really good tracker until this embarrass <laughs> embarrassment this year but, <laughs> but uh having yeah having a buddy there to just be you know. And not, and for me, like I always know where I hit him. Like my brother, he may or may not get a low fever sometimes and it's always kind of an experience, but I always <laughs> know where I hit it. And you know, like I doubted myself, which I should not have doubted myself. You know, like I knew where I hit it. Mm-hmm. I knew I drilled it. I knew it didn't go far. And after walking in circles for four hours, I start, started putting pictures in my head that weren't there, you know what I mean? And so Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh,
1: I shot this buck once out of a tree stand and uh hit him back. Uh ended up being a uh, little bit of liver, mostly punch. And I watched him, he instantly bedded where I could see him. And I sat there for a few hours. It was like it was like a um middle of the day that I shot him. Um, and he bedded down and, uh, another deer came by and he got up and he just couldn't do it. And he laid back down and I could not get another arrow in him. I had to, like, I leaned out. He was between some myrtles and I tried to stick an arrow in there and I scared him and he got up and he stepped off into the Creek and he went down and he bedded again where I could see him. And I was like, man, like, this is bad news. Like, um, there's no way I can get a shot at him. I'm just going to bump him onto private property so what I was really worried about. And so I, I climbed down and I climbed up the mountain and I picked a couple ridges over, you know, I did a big circle to get away from him and not blow him out of there. And there's a road down there below where he was at, but I normally don't park down there. So that morning, anyway, long story short, I pulled in there and parked on the road and I was like, all right, he's dead in this Creek. I know exactly where he's at. I know where exactly where his bed's at. And I go over to that bed and there's dark blood in it and there's guts and that arrows there. And I'm like, like there's nowhere he could have gone, but he crossed the road and into the farmer's field. And I kept like just looking around. And so I picked up the track and I fall, I, I got on my hands and knees. and I started crawling to this thick blackberry bush and I couldn't see him in there and I could just see my, my truck. And so I went down there to the truck and I'm looking around and I'm, I'm kind of parked, my truck's parked in the blackberry bush. and I'm like, all right, well I need to get in my truck and back my truck up and see if I can see where he crossed the road. And then I got to go talk to the farmer and see if I can get permission I backed the truck up a little bit, and the buck's under my truck.
3: <laughs>
1: what? <laughs> Dude, I'd been looking for the buck for like two hours. He literally got up out of his bed, went down the creek, and he got into the thick, thick bramble but, and lay down, embedded right next to the road next to the culvert. And my truck, I when I pulled up, there wasn't enough room on the road because there's nowhere to park there. There's no really... You just kinda of climb in there. So you, it's not even how I go to my you, tree stand.
3: You later drove down there, right? After you shot him, right? No I saw shot, I shot,
1: I shot him and I snuck out that night and I left him overnight. Okay, yeah. And and I and my my truck was parked like a couple hundred yards from there originally. Okay. So yeah. but that morning when I came in to look for him, I knew that he was gonna be dead by this creek that's by the road, and so I just went ahead and pulled there's not even a place to park, <laughs> so I kinda just you know got my truck off the road and into this blackberry bush and uh looking for him everywhere and i'm even kind of walking around my truck kind of looking around and i'm like god where you know i kind of climbed under there and when i moved my truck he was i hadn't run him over but he was under my front bumper
2: (laughs) so i turned the truck around and got him out and loaded him up whole oh my gosh well, that's another. Yeah, if only uh, you would have looked around a little bit before you went and looked in the creek, you would have saved yourself a little bit of. But you learned some if, tracking if, skills there. <laughs> yeah, if I would have if not let
1: the. I guess the moral of the story is I let the thick blackberries
2: scare me out of
1: tracking them. And mm-hmm. I tried to skip from where I couldn't crawl to past my truck.
2: And I was like, yeah.
1: he's, you know, uh, he, I got to figure it out. Well, that's
2: a, That's where he that's was a at. a huge. Yeah, that's a huge learning point. Don't ever eliminate where they're going to go based off of what seems easiest by that buck that i killed two years ago that you kind of encouraged me through james was like the best tracking job i've ever done and i got i kept following the main trails you know and there was no track in it and i hit this the, the main spot where i lost the track for the longest time the the trail that he was on he went in on forked and one went to the left and one went hooked down into the right and the trail to the left had tracks going the other direction in it. And the trail to the right didn't really have any tracks in it at first. But then when I got down below there, there was a big tra- like buck track in it. And I'm like, oh, he went down here. So I follow it and I lo- ended up losing it because it got into where all these other tracks were and it got really thick. And I looked and gritted all around there, couldn't find anything. I'm like, I'm going to go back to where I lost it um and I went and then I got to that junction and I go what if he went straight here instead of like going on a trail what if he just went through these ferns and so I peeled the ferns back and was like kind of feeling in the dirt and I could feel like his track and sure enough I got and saw it come out the other side and I ended up following it from there and I lost it a couple other times where I had to kind of come back to it where he jumped over he went to a bed and there was a big like thing of logs. And I couldn't tell where he went. I could tell he went into there, but I couldn't really find it coming out. And I'm like, maybe he jumped over these logs and sure enough, I, I climb up over these logs and look and there was his track there. And so it was like twice where things that I swore, he's not going to do it, you know, cause it's right. hurt or whatever. But then when they're hurt and they're trying to get somewhere, I mean, even if they are hurt, they're mortally hit. They have enough energy to, and, and fear and adrenaline to, go through anything, you know, you can't rule it out. You just got to look everywhere.
1: That's they can the do some big the, bounds.
2: The beauty of the snow. Yeah. That really helps. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know. I know it almost makes me want to just like, I'm only going to hunt in snow. Like I'm going to go wherever there's snow and just hunt there. Cause it's easier. But, but you, you learn... kept going, you kept
1: going back to last sign and, and working it out and, and you recovered that buck. Right.
2: And I, I did. Yeah. It was, it was literally 350 to 400 yards of no blood. I hit him in the guts. I hit him in the stomach actually. And, um, there was seriously not like, there was a few drops of blood where I hit him and then he went up and went through this muddy spot and I had his track there. And the one other thing I learned from that experience is like, when you get to where, you know, you're on their track, is like really analyze it and look at it because looking back at it, when I lost his track at that junction and I went down into the right and I saw that big buck track, that track was way bigger. It was rounder. The It was, and there was a couple big bucks in there, but it was the track. His track was really long and slender and pointy. And it almost like when he like well, would just almost, sometimes I'd only feel just the tip of it in the leaves. I could feel it or I could see it. And it almost looked like a doe track because it was so, that's why I was like, I was doubting it the whole time, but I found some of this, this green, like, like diarrhea poop looking stuff that was fresh. And I'm like, I'm like, this has gotta be him. You know, like, this looks like a sick deer, you know, diarrhea. And sure enough, I fou- followed it and I lost it a couple of times. Like you said, I kept coming back to it and like, I could not believe it when I, I walked and I like the track went right. I walked right to the buck. Like he was right there. And I'm, to me, it was like, holy cow, like, I was actually on him this whole time. The whole time, I didn't even, like, I was starting to, like, lose belief in that I was on him, but I, like, I had nothing else going.
1: We talked a few times in between that, I think, through text.
2: Yeah, we did, that day, yeah, 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 yeah. and and, uh, you were like, just stay on it, like, that's gotta be him, you know, and I was like, I don't know, man, like, I think I'm not gonna find this thing, like, I think I'm on some random deer track, and when I followed it to him, I was just like, that is so cool, like, it was a big confidence booster and an eye opener to me. Like normally I would have stopped like lost heart after that first lost track. You know, I would have started gritting cause I'm just worried about the meat going bad.
1: Yeah. And, like your buck from the year before that you were gritting and you showed mm-hmm. me his last track and I was like, well that tracks a lot different than all these other tracks around here. And, and uh, you know, well, I think I worked it out in 20 minutes.
2: Yeah. And it's funny because I walked down there and I, I saw the same track you did. And I'm like, I'm like, yeah, oh, that's, I'm like, that's too obvious. I walked through, it went like the track. I just saw where it was heading through this open Oak flat and it's open. You can see, you know, he stopped the there are, and,
1: he was, and he got 10 or 20 yeah. yards apart. Yeah. And
2: I walked through that one time. So I just assumed like there was nothing there because yeah. I walked through it and I would have seen it, but I literally had to walk on the other side of the tree from this, this dead deer that, you know, that like you were saying, Bob, you could walk around this deer several times. I guess the moral of the story is too, and not, and, and it be there. And you think that it's not there because you, you quote unquote, covered it already, you know? Yeah. So I guess.
1: When, and when you're not the shooter, it's a somewhat, you can be way more calmer and, and, you know, you can be like, <laughs> and when right, it's not like, the biggest
2: buck of your life too.
1: Yeah. yeah. That thing is that's, well, so far. Oh, so far. Yeah, man. I remember you said you were going to quit blacktail hunting.
2: Well, more or less, I did. I mean, I didn't. I didn't <laughs> get anything this year, but I'm having fun. Still trying to figure it out. You know, when you get something like that, it's like I may not ever kill a buck like that ever again the rest of my life. And I don't need to. I mean, that was that was like I don't know my once in a lifetime buck. It was
1: man, really cool. m- m- Matt Dunbar did an amazing job on the taxidermy on that spinning swivel mounted pedestal mount is that what you'd
2: call it yeah yeah i i knew i always like his mounts are incredible he mostly does blacktails. he does he does great any mount he does but he really like he's got blacktails dialed and uh, i knew if i ever killed a buck like that i was wanted him to mount it and he was gracious enough to take me on because he was full you he, he i said i don't care i'll wait like an extra year or two and he did like he made that buck look better on the mount than it did in real life. I <laughs>
1: feel like <laughs> it looks. It. I mean, I didn't get to see your buck alive, but seeing him when you field dressed him, and we packed him out, and then seeing him in, in your uh, in your man cave there, uh, it, it looked just like him. I was just like, wow. I can yeah. only imagine how awesome it was when he showed up on the scene that morning for you to, to uh, have the opportunity to arrow him.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's what, it's what you dream about as a hunter, you know, and, and you spend, you know, I like this year, we went down there for a whole week, waking up early, you know, hunting all day. And when he I says just, early, like, he refers to 3 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> we weren't as hardcore this year, James. I kind of, I kind of changed my tune a little bit and was like, you know, in some of the areas, cause I did want to be a little more mobile, uh, on the days when, the conditions weren't as good. I wasn't hunting those high percentage, like open transition areas when the deer are moving good. Like I didn't hunt those. So it's like, why would I go out in the dark? You know, Right. unless I, although I will tell you, I think something that could be worthwhile because like you've seen it when you're walking in the dark, whether it's coming out at night or going in the morning, we always see game and you always see them moving in areas that Um, you know, kind of alert you to their presence. And they're not spooked to the bright,
1: bright white headlamps like you think they would be. They're just like neat to do, no big deal.
2: When they're rutted up, yeah. Yeah, But I mean, like this year, we've seen them. They were, they, they weren't like terrified. They're not terrified. They'll look at you from 100 yards and you can see their eyes and they kind of walk off. But I think that you know, if you're going into a new area and going there in the dark, that was something I took from this year is like Maybe going in early, like, even when you're scouting, you're more or less scouting, you know. If you're walking through the dark, you're finding where deer are feeding at in the evening, and that's information that's valuable for you, or, you know, for putting the puzzle together. So being out there early can be valuable, even if you're, you know. Obviously, you don't want to spook them out of where you're planning on hunting, but um, I don't know. That was kind of interesting. I don't yeah, think you guys, I'm thinking
3: as you guys are talking about that. And I'm trying to think of a time when I've seen a deer hiking in or out of a tree stand in the dark. And I don't think I ever have blacktail hunting.
2: You know? Well, well, I only see them down in Southern Oregon Different where there's place. lots of deer. Yeah. yeah. it's a, yeah. I mean, where we hunt here, I guess you'll see them out we're, in the cuts. We're, we're walking down, um,
1: Dave and Matt and I were spread out, you know, we plan to spread out over a half mile a piece or something, but we were heading in at like four 30 in the morning or something, four in the morning. And, and uh, we see this buck tending this doe and we walked right past him and I remember I took a second look like that's a pretty nice buck. And we get we get about three hundred yards from that from where we'd seen that buck, and Matt goes, I don't think I think it would be foolish if somebody doesn't set up here. Like someone should set up on this bench. And uh I was quick to say, Yeah, I'll do that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, because the, the, they were just down there and, you know, it's like, there's no reason to. And so I ended up getting to it, uh, climbed up in the tree saddle and, and I think it was like an hour after daylight. I had them, uh, uh, get my wind, but they, they were close to me they not, not shooting. Um, they were in the thicket, but yeah, you, yeah. you just never know.
2: I mean, you can be in the game doing it that way for sure. Dependent, like you said before, when you jump them in their bedding area, if it's like a soft bump, you hear them talk about a bump and dump, you know, where you jump them out and then they, you set up and like an hour or two later, they come back in. I think that, um, you know, if you see them at night and you know, you're kind of in a nighttime area, like just look for the, you know, somewhere close that you think they're, you know, you can start to try to form assumptions on where you think they might be bedding or, or who knows, maybe they are in just a high percentage travel area and, and you just want to set back up there for the day or or that evening come back and set up there because you know. They're, that they're That is one thing I've noticed. Like when I hike out in, at night, I usually take that same route in and out of there or pretty close to the same route, James, that we take in there. And mm-hmm. every evening I see the deer in the same spots coming up yep. you know feeding in the timber in these same areas. And it's like, yep. okay. And you take note of that for evening hunt. You know, like in the morning, I like my morning spot that's deeper in there. But the evening, I'm like, I need it's a closer to the truck for one, and two, there's always deer coming up on that timbered bench or that little mull. from that
1: timber where yeah. that knoll and that big tent, or that big point yeah. is, from that top bench. Yeah, yeah.
2: yeah.
1: they're and always so, moving
2: right through there. Yeah, I don't know. I mean. It's, uh, but going out there and, and hunting a bunch and then like this year, you know, I didn't even get, I didn't even like come close to drawing my bow back, but Dave got a shot and then, uh, he, he got a shot at a buck that we spotted when we were driving from, from one area to another, he got out, you know, buck crossed the road and he got out and went after it, got a shot at it, missed it. But, um, those are the only two, two shots, shots we had. Two shots. Okay. Yeah. He got two shots and a not, hunting was not favorable bait. weather no basically. it's it's definitely from what I've seen it's you know statistically from the last whatever seven or eight years down there there's it's like you're saying Bob with your meal deer hunt one out of three years you get the weather right and it's unreal and then the other two you're you're hunting pretty hard you know to try to make something happen but we still usually get encounters even in the harder weather so um when they're there it's just you got to figure out what they're doing. That's what we're still trying to figure out. (laughs) I did have an awesome hunting season this year though. I, this was the first year and I don't know. I mean, I don't even remember the first year where I didn't fill a single tag. I didn't fill my Nevada tag. I didn't fill my Oregon elk tag. I didn't fill my Oregon deer tag. Um, and, uh, I'm trying to think what other tags. Oh, and I didn't fill my Wyoming elk tag. I had amazing encounters. Um, but I was in on a lot of harvests. My, Brother got his first traditional longbow kill in Nevada, which was awesome. It actually was kind of a bit of a fiasco, that, but um, it was really cool because that was a big monkey off his back. And then um, I, my dad got a nice bull in Wyoming that we're, my son called in for him, and that was a really special trip. And I, I was on a really big bull, the biggest bull i have ever seen in my life, which was really fun and had just great in action. And then my son, the highlights were getting my son killed a nice, pretty nice blacktail in Washington. And then he got, he's nine and he got a doe. I had a doe tag that he did the mentor Utah. So he got a doe. So he got two deer this year. And then my my wife shot a really nice buck for around here um, on the last day of the season, which is a, a really cool story. It's not a traditional archery story, but that's a pretty cool story. I, I told James that I'll have to tell it to you sometimes, Bob but it's, uh, it was fun, you know, to get to see other people harvest animals. Like you were saying, Bob, you love scouting. You're taking Ava with you when you, like you guys are expecting, you know, another one coming down the pipe. When you have kids, it just changes as you get older. It's harder. You know, I still have that drive to get out and get some serious hunting in, but I had so much fun getting my kids out, and my daughter now is going to be, you know, hopefully she. We've got her signed up for the field day for hunter safety, so she's hopefully going to be able to hunt Washington deer next year. And uh, yeah, well, I don't know.
1: Thank, thank goodness for the kids. Alexa put a, uh, an elk and a deer in my freezer, our freezer this year, and and like you say, it was just the, I didn't get to uh, late season blacktail, my elk season. Well, I had I had a really good first week of season hunting with you Matt um, up on the north coast that was actually some some of the better elk hunting I've done in years and and uh, we had some very close encounters you called in a, a bull right <laughs> into my lap literally About, so uh, video you
2: sent the other day that was funny
1: <laughs> yeah I mean he he brought this bull uh, in too close too fast um, we, we got on him a bunch that week um, one of the memorable spots was when we uh, went out night bugling and we got that bull going and we dropped in on him and he was there like like exactly where we thought he would be. And when we got down there though, like as soon as we started getting down in there, I knew the wind was wrong and the bull got our wind. But the cool thing is the spot was so awesome. It was like a blacktail mm. mecca spot. Like we knew right away, we were like, <laughs> oh man, we know why this bulls here. We know why there's bucks here. Like this spot is awesome.
2: Yeah. I mean I could talk about that because I just pulled the cameras that I set up in there. But um it was cool. Like James said, we, we like he made some nice like tailgate lunch. We put we like parked on this landing in this pretty I don't know, it's it's a timber patch, but it's not like real grown up. It's still like you can walk under it, but it's pretty thick when you dive off and as soon as we come off the hill, it's like, there's deer crap, there's deer crap, there's deer crap, there's deer crap, there's, there's rub, there's a rub, there's a rub. I'm like, holy cow. I'm like, this is like deer mecca. And I'm like getting all jacked about the deer sign as we're going in there to try to call this elk. So I'm like all distracted. And, um, you know, we blow the opportunity on the elk, but we, as we get down there on. I'm like, holy cow! yeah, yeah, we did see the bull that he just, like James said, he got our land, but we came to this. It's basically a creek header, you know, which you hear guys talk yeah. about a lot, but like at the top end of a creek header, that, um, it's, it's like there's an old cat road that you can't access it on either side because like one side of it's pre commercial thin and it's just, which is where they cut trees down, you know, to thin the trees out, but it just makes this maze of trees that you can't walk over or through it if they're sitting up in the air, like 10 feet up in the air for guys that, you know, don't know what that means on the coast here. It's just like the worst stuff ever. You can't really even hardly get through it. And uh, so on one end, the road is has that across it, So and this is just an old cat road. So But in as you get in there, this timber kind of opens up, and it's nice, and it's thick all around it. There's a nice creek. There's no roads, you know, in this little section besides that old cat road. And for whatever reason, that cat road comes to the top end of this creek where, like, right where it gets steep, and everything just funnels right above it. And there's like a little bench there, with like just rubs alder in there. everywhere. Yeah, some alders, kind of like a nice little alder patch. Just a really diverse, small area yeah. with a lot of diversity in it.
1: That little swampy, um, tiny meadowy, itsy bitsy thing.
2: Yeah, it had like a little, little tiny like swamp, like I'm talking like 15 yard little swamp.
1: Yeah,
2: and there was like a creek that dumped out off of that. With you know, it just had a little bit of everything. Yeah. But they had that really thick, what I found with the deer is right above it where that pre-commercial thin reprod is where it's really thick and hard to walk through. That's where they were bedding the deer were. And I went back in there with my wife during rifle season and we snuck in from a different way to get in there. And like, just as we were going in there, we had a doe come like running right by us. It was really cool. It came like five feet from us and we were just kind of standing there and all of a sudden it just comes running. I was expecting to see a buck behind it, but nothing ever came. And then we went a little further and saw a and horn, and she passed it up. It was just a little tiny dink. And that, then uh,
1: that's how that's how you know you're a blacktail junkie when it's September and the bulls are starting to bugle and we blow one out, and now we're like, you're like, I got to hang a camera and I can put my tree <laughs> saddle right here and look at this buck rub, look at this buck rub. We're just we went straight to blacktail. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Well, that's the beauty of hunting in elk and deer in the same spot, you know, that you hunt, like you get lucky occasionally and stumble across Mm -hmm. gems like that. But, um, I know like you guys just, I listened to your podcast about the trail camera thing and I'm obviously, um, I'm all for getting rid of them. I mean, I don't think that, I think it'd be a good thing with blacktails, obviously with how we've talked about, you know, all these things that make them very difficult to hunt. The trail cameras have been very helpful in me for, learning more about the deer but also like learning about the spot so like in this spot we're talking about i hung three cameras in a relatively close proximity they're probably all within a few hundred yards of each other and it's incredible to me like you have all this sign and all these i figured i would have had similar action on most of it i did the one that was the best i thought was going to be the best as well um it had the most pictures And, but the other ones, like one of the other ones that I thought was, I thought was actually a blacktail scrape and I didn't get hardly any pictures of deer on it at all. Um, so it wasn't what I thought it was, but come to find out, I think I had 11 or no 13 daytime buck, blacktail buck pictures on that one location on the top of that creek header where stuff just kind of funneled through out of this bedding area. And, uh, during the rut, obviously that's when they were, I I didn't get the camera up till kind of later during the, the route was already kind of going. So, um, but it was pretty cool to see like next year I've got a lot of confidence and I saw, you know, I look at it really analytical. I break down every photo. I break down what time it was, what time of day it was. And then I, I like categorize them all. So say like, you know, this percentage was in the morning, this percentage was in the middle of the day. This percentage was from three o'clock till dark, you know, I'd usually do from like, Sunrise to ten, ten to two or three, or ten to yeah, ten to three, and then three to three to dark, and um, it was just interesting. You know, most of the pictures I had were in the middle of the day and in the evening. There, a lot of pictures of them coming down to that bedding area, um, and then the bucks, though, during the rut, a lot of them were coming cruising that old cat road to get up into that bedding area. Kind of going, it's interesting though. You could get, you know, things I could deduct from the trail cameras was okay their direction to travel. Like the majority of the time they came from right to left in the evening coming out of this bedding area. And, I mean, that's stuff that obviously is going to help me kill a deer. And so, um, I mean, I see that the value in, you know, people saying that the trail cameras don't help you kill stuff. I will be the first to say like I've the bucks that I've killed here locally, I've killed because of trail cameras. If I didn't have them, I don't think I would have killed the deer, you know? Um, so, yeah, uh,
3: a, I'm all for It's a good conversation. We don't we have. have to. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, they I definitely
1: mean, give you good, or, uh, uh, um, annual information of, you know, how they use the landscape or how they use, uh, food sources or, or, or whatever. And there's no doubt that there's a lot
2: to be learned from. Yeah. There is. And, but I mean, it's, It's something that we don't, we can, I I think hunting off of assumptions and and like things that you think are going like that really is what hunting is, right? It's like knowing like factual stuff is what we want to know as a hunter because it makes us more confident and when we can sit longer, you know, or spend time in the spot. If I know the bucks last year from these days, you know, like four out of the, seven days bucks came by the spot in the middle of the day. Like I know I'm going to sit there all seven days and the buck's going to come by and that's, yeah. you know, um, it's valuable, but it's, it's like, is that, is that really hunting though? You know, is it starting to get to where now it's you're not hunting as much. You're not thinking as much as more. You are like setting these traps and, and learning the annual data. And then you're, I don't know. It's made me, your guys' conversation made me really like kind of, think about it more. I mean, I, I know like if they took them away, I'm not going to be mad or upset. I'm not, it's not like I'm going to stop hunting or complain about it. Like I'm just going to do what I got to do to, to use what I know, um, to keep hunting. But I do really enjoy finding spot, like a new spot like that and setting the camera up. And I usually don't even hunt it, you know, like this year I didn't even go in and hunt that spot. I just wanted to get the data on it and see. And then like next year, usually when I hunt spots, it's like the following year. And I don't really like, I mean, I could have a camera on it, but I really don't need to. Cause next year, I know both those bucks made it through the year, the season. So they may, they're going to be alive unless they get killed by a cougar. And they're probably going to be doing the same similar things. So, Oh, it's interesting. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I, th- I think the, the, the desert states obviously i mean like places like utah and arizona have the, the bigger politic issues around you know a million like 14 cameras on the same water hole and guys oh you yeah know, that's a no-brainer yeah that's yeah, yeah. a big problems. yeah yeah
2: that makes sense and,
1: and then the cell cameras you know like giving people mm-hmm. instant uh data that's definitely you know can be uh
3: yeah, uh, it's definitely uh. There's things we need to keep an eye on. That's why we bring them up on this podcast, not because we, are you know, 100 against any of them. But I know, it's just a lot of stuff out there that, uh, you know, gotta ask ourselves sometimes. Yeah, I, gotta, like I, said, I got cut. Like I said, I gotta couple of them up because you know it's a new. Like I said, I'm hunting a completely different area. You know, and mm-hmm. I never used them uh my other areas i mean i had a camera when they first came out with trail cameras i had one of the 35 millimeter ones it was like a buckshot 35 it was called it was like four or five hundred dollars and i used that for a couple years and you had to go you'd have to go get the film and take it to one hour photo and it was awesome (laughs) you know you're like this is so cool and uh you know you go put it out for a couple of weeks and then you drive over to you snorging, and you'd go to the one hour photo and, and then there'd be like, you know, 200 pictures of cattle on it or something, you know, or whatever. I don't even remember how many <laughs> pictures you could get. And you'd be like, damn it. <laughs> Cause it did, you know, it did a whole thousands of pictures. I don't even remember, you know, it was, uh, yeah. but then it got stolen one time and I was just so depressed after that. I was like,
2: eh. Oh gosh. You'll like not- this. So this year I went and pulled the camera. And the spot I put it in was in this really brushy saddle. It was only like probably not even a hundred yards from this, this old spur road that not very many people went down, you know, it was like just like a hundred yard spur road that just ended in a brush pile. But there's a saddle and we walked out through the brush that like, I really felt like the animals were going to be crossing over. Well, so I put it out there like early in the season. I usually like to get them out before October and then I'll leave them out till like December. And then I'll go check them at the end of the year and just see what, you know, move through there. And when I go out there, like somebody went out with like almost like a, like a motorized brush trimmer or something and just cut this highway, like right down the ridge to where I set my camera. And I'm like, Oh, this isn't going to be good. And I get down there and my camera's still there and I'm astonished. And I pull the camera down and I look and I'm like, the card's still in it. And I turn it on. I'm like, Oh, there's going to be a pile of pictures. I wonder what went by. And I look and there's one picture And I'm like, what in the world is that picture of? I zoom in on it. Somebody mooned it, took, took, they deleted all the pictures on the camera and then took a picture of their hairy butt and, and put it back up on the cheek. (laughs) And I was, I was pissed at first. And then I showed Paxton and he just started dying laughing. And I started laughing. I'm like, Mike, they got us pretty good, didn't they? (laughs) Uh, That's what you get for running trail cameras right there. Oh, that is hilarious. That is too good right there. That is awesome. Uh, like, at least they didn't steal it.
1: Yeah, we're going to have to get uh, that uh, Dr. uh, Dwayne Jackson back on and see what the conclusion is to his his blacktail study. Yeah.
2: I'd be interested to hear um, their migration. I know they were looking at some of the migration stuff a little more with radio callers and that'd be interesting.
1: Yeah. Um, that's something that we will have to, uh, together, uh, three of us up to write some stuff down, re-listen to that podcast and plan to, uh, get him back on so we can revisit maybe some more of the deeper dive into, into the black tailed deer. But I think this was a great conversation and, um, we really appreciate, uh, you taking the time away from the family this evening and, uh, joining us to, uh, jaw jack, some Pacific Northwest blacktail deer. And I guess we touched a little bit on everything. So yeah, yeah I appreciate, appreciate you guys
3: stand hunting. We, we should do one sometime and talk, you know, still hunting and rattling and yeah. You know, yeah. For the guys that don't absolutely don't blacktail hunt. There's kind of a few ways guys go about it. And,
2: yeah, yeah. I the- think like, yeah, like you were we were saying, you know, just having all those tools in your tool belt because there's so many times where like, you know, like where that does doesn't apply, or you need to hunt off the ground, or you need to, you know, you need to adapt to what what's going on in the situation where you're at, and I think the more things you verse yourself in the the better you're going to be able to adapt as you're like getting there and thinking about what's going to be the best way to get the job done, you know?
1: So um, some things that we should, people should be looking forward to out here. Um, I guess the spring we'll have the uh, Western States is going to be Oregon this year. Uh, last weekend of May, it's going to be in the grand uh, traditional archers of Oregon's hosting that event um this is later this spring so that's going to be awesome looking forward to seeing you guys there um i know what uh pbs uh it's going to be in reno so they're considered west west coast this year west no side they're going to be in reno i think march 17th 18th 19th um you know I wish i could make that one I'm not going to be able to make that but that sounds super awesome hmm. um comptons will be out in michigan this year again that would be another cool one to try to make but yeah those are some things going on is there i don't know anything else that we need to mention in closing here bob um
3: maybe just uh you know thank our patreon supporters you know we've been slacking a little yeah. bit and we're gonna you know kind of getting back on it so we don't really have sponsors on our podcast, as you guys know, so it's all our Patreon guys, so if you guys want to support us on there, the the guys help us out a lot, give us some discounts on there and stuff, so thanks yeah, we to those guys. Those guys that stuck it out, we really appreciate it, and um, you know, we got some buddies that help us out all the time, Andy over at Addictive Archery, he's helped us out a ton over the years, and think there's a discount on that patreon for him and carson at sherwood shafts and and uh, riley at archery past all uh, all our buddies you know
1: yeah and if if you guys uh hadn't heard we lost uh one of one of our mentors one of our friends alan boyce uh liberty longbows uh here in the last few months and it's been a huge loss for the whole community and and uh, we're gonna miss him. I'm sure he's uh, looking down on us, uh, hunting big bucks and whatnot. So, um, yeah, we miss you, buddy. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, why don't you guys uh, drop us an email? Let us know uh, if there's any, any anyone you want us to have us bring back on. I know we want to kind of recycle some of our guys we've had on before, get them back on, and, and get a some more stories from some of the legends and uh, we've got some other good ideas so send us an email at tradquestpodcast at gmail.com check us out on Instagram um, yeah support our uh, your local traditional archery clubs and Compton's PBS and always keep the wind in your face pick a spot and shoot straight
0: full of hope, I've got the urge to walk the prairie and chase the antelope, Aspen's gold, oxmo-calf, peaks, the elk, call me away, I can't keep my mind on working on this fine September day, I've got nimrod neurosis, longbows on the brain, I'm an outdoor junkie, through and through, hunts my middle name. Eyes are on the target, heads all fly true. Can't wait till I can get outside so I can fling a few. There. I've got nim rider roses, long on the brain. I'm an outdoor junkie through and through, hunts my middle name. My eyes are all the target, broad heads off by true. Wait till I can get outside. Thank you.